0: A few years ago, I had the opportunity to sit down and visit with a friend of mine. He was a salesman in East Texas, and the events of the week were such that he sought me out on a Sunday, and he said, let's talk for a few minutes. And so he pulled me aside, and we began to talk, and he began to recount for me one of the experiences that he had had that week. Because he was a salesman, he was out driving around in the countryside, going from one town to the next, and he... He came across the site that seized his attention, so he pulled over onto the side of the road. And as he watched what was happening, it became obvious that there was about to be a great collision. What he had seen as he was driving was a tractor trailer, semi 18 wheeler, whichever those terms you prefer, had been going across one of those small town um, farm and market roads and was gonna cross a railroad track and the hump of the crossing was too high for his trailer. And so once he got across, the trailer high-centered and was stuck on the railroad tracks. So he stopped, and he was watching as those guys began to try to work that thing off of the tracks. And then he noticed coming down the tracks was a train. I used to say everybody loves to see a train wreck. But after that discussion, I decided that uh, that's not the case. If you owned that particular trailer and truck, you didn't want to see a train wreck that day. But that's, in fact, what happened. My friend sat and he watched the whole thing happen. You can see this, by the way. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same one. I don't think it's the same one, but it's in the same set of railroad tracks, not too far from where that happened. If you YouTube, it's from Nome, Texas in 2013. Don't do that while we're in the worship service, but... uh, When a force of significant size comes against a trailer trapped on a railroad tracks, there are definite impacts and fallouts that occur because of that. Let me take the same scenario and push it into a little different application. The scenario now is actually uh, that it involves a Young boy, a uh, excuse me, a elementary school boy, and an automobile. Friend of mine, his name is Cade. He's in uh, high school now, but uh, Cade was one of those kids that you just love. He, his heart was great, but he was always into stuff. And he went to the church where I was pastoring, and I was involved with a Wednesday night children's program, and uh, I got to know Cade there, and Cade was always in trouble. I mean, he was just always pushing the boundaries, but his heart was pure. He was just all boy, and I loved him from the first time I started dealing with him. And uh, I got a call one night, several years ago now, that said that Cade had been uh, involved in an accident. He and a couple of his friends were at his house, and they were skateboarding from their driveway down across the street into their neighbor's driveway. And everything was going well with that, and they were having a great time until as Cade went down that driveway into the street, there was a teenage boy who had just gotten his license, and he was coming down the street, and he hit Cade, and we weren't sure Cade was going to live through the night. As a matter of fact, they had to airlift him to Houston. I got the phone call and jumped in the car and went and spent nearly the whole night in Houston in the critical care unit of one of those downtown hospitals, and it was a horrible situation. It allowed me and his father to go back into the medical exam room and CCU where he was, and um, it just didn't even seem like the same kid. When a car hits a human body, it does incredible damage. What happens when worship and anger collide? We can get on YouTube and we can see what happens when a train hits a stranded truck. And we can imagine and we can even go to places and see what happens when a vehicle hits a kid. But when worship and anger collide the fallout is not much different than those others. It is a terrible kind of collision, or so Jesus seems to say in Matthew 5. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And then this next step into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus now begins to take us a little further, a little deeper into the lessons of last week. If you happen to have been here last week, or maybe you listened to it online or you saw it on TV, uh, you'll find that uh, last week was a little uncomfortable for those of us who are recovering angerholics. Jesus does not cut us a whole lot of slack. He starts off fine. We, we, we actually feel like we're doing Okay. When he begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We're all pretty good with that. We think, okay, Jesus, great sermon. Keep it up. But Jesus is on the loose here. And when Jesus is on the loose in his teachings, you can be sure that he's going to get right down next to where we live our everyday lives. So Jesus not content to leave it at that external righteousness where you just do the right things or don't do the wrong things. He dives in and says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And as we saw last week, Jesus uses that passage to kind of sit right in next to us and say to us, it is not okay to have unchecked anger issues in your life. If he stopped there, we still would be a little more comfortable than we're going to end up by the time he gets through with this topic because today we step another t- another we take another step with him as he opens up the door for us in a little different way verse t- uh, 23 says so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Two big truths jump off of this lesson for us today, I think. Here's the first one. Jesus calls us to live with an acute awareness of how our behavior impacts other people. Let me say that again because it's a mouthful. Jesus calls us with this to live with an acute awareness of how our behavior impacts other people. This is an abrupt shift in the conversation. It's subtle enough that we might just miss it if we're not careful. And if we just kind of half-mindedly wander into this particular passage of Scripture, it would be easy for us to miss the lesson that Jesus is promoting here. It's abrupt but it's subtle. Look at verse 23, the English Standard Version, which is what I use to preach up here. The first word of verse 23 is, so, so if you, he says. It's a small two-letter word that has great implications for us. Because what he says with this is that what he has said before is if you're angry, deal with your anger. But with this one word so and the shift that occurs in the, in the sermon here, he moves it from not being our own anger. Now he talks about how we respond to those people who are angry with us. There's a lot to be said about that, and we'll try to get a lot of it said today. But let's not miss this part of it. The shift is If you have anger issues, deal with them. That's last week. But now Jesus is not content to just leave it there. Now he pushes it right into our lap, and he says that we are to take responsibility if we have caused someone else to be angry or even offended, as it turns out. We we need to pause and wear this, I think, and take on for ourselves what we really ought to take for ourselves here. Because one of the things that I think is true about our human nature is that sometimes we are deliberate in provoking anger in somebody else. Now, maybe not you, but you know your spouse is like that, don't you? Okay, now that's supposed to be funny. Okay, I'm not trying to get into your marriage and cause trouble here. So, let me put it this way. Sometimes we are intentional in provoking anger or offense. It's an old story, Uh, But as the story goes, it's back in the day when people used to have telephones in their homes. Remember those days? We don't do that anymore for the most part. If you still have one of those, that's good. But you're in a rare breed anymore. And even this story occurs before uh, there was such a thing as caller ID. A lot of the younger folks in our world today don't know a world where there was no caller ID. But there used to be a day if somebody called you, you picked up a phone in your home, you had no idea who was on on the other end of it. So in this particular story, a father is trying to teach his teenage son something about anger. He's beginning to see anger issues with his son, and so he wanted to work through it with him, and he said, so let's do this. He sat his son down next to the phone in the house, and he said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a phone call. I want to show you the difference between simple frustration and anger and rage. he sits down next to the phone, takes out a pad, and as he's dialing a number, a random number I might add, he writes down the number on a pad. And so, on the other end, a lady answers the phone. She says, hello. And he says, hi, may I speak with Joe, please? And the lady says, very politely, I'm sorry, there's nobody here by that name. You must have the wrong number. So, they both hang up. And he looks at his son, and he says, you see, she's polite and all that. And he says, now, we're going to wait a minute or so. And now I'm going to call her back. That's why he wrote the number down. And so he calls her back, and as soon as she answers the phone, he says, hi, may I speak with Joe, please? And she now, now she's not quite so polite. She said, sir, I just told you a couple of minutes ago, there is no Joe here. You must have the wrong number. He says, okay, thank you. So they hung up. And so he says to his son, that's frustration. You heard it in her voice. He said, but let's see what happens now. So he picks up the phone after another minute or so, calls the same number. And this time she picks up the phone and he says, hi, may I please speak with Joe? At this point, she's angry. And her response is, I told you there is no Joe here. Stop calling my number. And she slams the phone down. And he looks at his son, and he says, you see the difference? So she's not frustrated anymore. Now she's angry. He said, but now let's just see what happens with rage. So he picks up the phone, and he dials the number. And before she says, she doesn't say hello. Before he can say anything, she screams into the phone. She doesn't even know it's him. She just knows it has to be him. I told you there's no joy. You stop calling me. And he says, well, excuse me, I... Uh, my name is Joe. I was just calling to see if there are any messages for me. <laughs> Sometimes, I don't think that's a true story, just so you know. Sometimes we intentionally provoke other people. <laughs> my oldest son, his name is Brandon. Uh, Brandon had a way with his mother that was, uh, well, if it wasn't so serious and if I didn't think that she might kill him at some point, it would have been very humorous most of the time. Teresa used to collect small shoes, the decorative kind, okay? Nobody would ever wear any of them because they're made out of ceramics or whatever the other kind of stuff. I, you know, I I played along with it. I just never really got it. Uh, But she had, I don't know, six or seven million shoes around the house, and we would go places, and she would shop, and if she saw shoes, you know, then I knew we were going to be taking a few home. And, uh, and it got to be one of those things. It made for an easy anniversary gift because I knew what she wanted. I could just get her one. But, um, so, but those shoes were spread around the house, neatly organized, artistically positioned, you might say, until our son Brandon would come in. And our son, remember the point of this is that sometimes we intentionally provoke people to anger. So, my son loved yanking his mama's chain on this kind of stuff. And so, what he would do is he would sneak in when she wasn't looking, and he would take those shoes and he would reorganize them. And sometimes, as a matter of fact, most of the time, it was a simple reorganization. He would just turn them backwards from the way they were. And it might be an hour Or it might be a week, but sooner or later, his mama would figure out and see what had happened, and then it was game on with our oldest son. And he did it intentionally just to provoke her. It happens a lot in relationships, you know. Those are easy, kind of really not all that that big a deal kind of examples. But you, you know, don't you, that sometimes in our relationships we intentionally provoke people. We do things that we know is getting under their skin. Maybe it's passive aggressiveness and maybe it's just because we're mean. But uh, maybe it's sometimes we're just kind of playing around, but then it gets out of hand. Sometimes our anger leaks into our relationships Here's what Jesus is saying in these two examples. I I haven't said that yet, so let me just highlight that for you. Verses 23 and 24 is example number one of what Jesus is saying. Here's what he's saying. We can't let anger linger in our relationships. Verses 23 and 24, he uses this word in their brother. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. So this, is a, this is an incredible statement. Uh, for those people sitting on that hillside, they would have heard this, and it would have just resonated for them because they, Jesus is talking about the sacrificial system. And when he's talking about going uh, and, and your gift being left at the altar here, that's something that occurred only in Jerusalem, only at the temple. And most of these guys in that northern part of Palestine would have only gone to, to, to worship like that maybe once, twice max three times a year. And so Jesus makes this statement to them that this has to just bounce off of their ears out there on the side of that hill. Jesus says, when you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember, not that you have something against your brother, that was last week. Now he says, and you you realize and you remember that your brother has something against you. So this first example occurs inside the church. The second one, verses 25 and 26, he uses the word adversary in one translation, accuser. in this one, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest he hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And so what Jesus does is he uses both of these things to capture the whole life of the follower of him whether it's somebody in the church or somebody outside of the church, whether you're guilty or not. Guilty in the second example, maybe, maybe not in the first one. The point that Jesus drives home is you cannot let anger linger in your relationships. In fact, what he really says is you need to take drastic steps to get that taken care of, to fix it. That round trip? 100 miles or more, definitely more than 100 miles round trip for that worship interruption was ludicrous. Those guys, in order to go and do a sacrifice at the temple, their gift at the altar, they would have had to gone all the way down to Jerusalem. They go through this entire purification ritual that included a bath and includes changing clothes, and they get weighed in line. And by the time he, the picture is they finally get to the front of the line and your brother is something against you. And you remember that, just leave everything and go back up north and get it all fixed. It's drastic activity, Jesus is saying. And with that, he is driving the point home for us. It is not acceptable for us who are children of God to allow anger to linger in our relationships. The reason he says that is tied up in what he's already said is our purpose and our position in Christ. We are to be salt. We are to be light as we've said in terms of this particular series, we are to be brilliant reflectors of Jesus Christ into a society. And so now Jesus is just kind of doubling down on part of society. We as a society love to be angry with each other. And it's not where we can just say, well, you know, you did it to me, so I let it go. Our society doesn't do that. It's not forgive and forget. It's forgive and forget and always remember. It's not about, you know, two wrongs make a right. Right. No, I don't want to be right. I want to be ahead. That's our society. And so this idea of not letting relationships stay ruptured is not acceptable for Jesus or for his disciples. As one commentator said, I wonder how many churches would be empty today if we took this directive seriously. If we came to church to do our worship and we remembered something was wrong, said, I can't stay today, i got to go deal with somebody who's upset with me. We don't tend to do that. We tend to let it slide and let it ride. So let me highlight a couple of those things for us and we'll be done. I think one of the reasons that we let it slide and let it ride is because we've grown comfortable with not fixing broken relationships. I heard a preacher say one time, he was in the midst of a a bit of an encounter, a dust-up, a flare-up, if you will. And the preacher looked to the other person who was extremely upset and wanting the pastor to be upset as well, and he looked at that person, and he said to them, listen, if somebody has to be upset here, better you than me. Now, cut me um, him a little bit of slack. That's kind of natural for us, isn't it? It's okay if somebody else is upset. I just, you know, I I, I adopt that deal that says, I, I just, well, it's like, like one family used to say, you're just going to have to get glad in the same pants you got mad in. That's the way of our world. And if we're not careful, that becomes the way of our churches. That get glad in the same pants you got mad in, you know what that communicates to somebody? It communicates, I'm not changing. So if this is going to get right, you're going to have to be the one to change which, by the way, falls right back into that pattern of sinful behavior we talked about last week, which is that idea of control, that I will be in control, I'll call the shots, it'll be my way or to will be no way at all, that's sin. And we often push that off on somebody else and say, if somebody's got a change in this, it's going to have to be you because I didn't do anything wrong. Jesus is not concerned with fault here. He's concerned with repair here. The reason that's important for us, let me give you a quick couple of reasons that I think we should care about this. It's good for you to get this fixed. If you're at odds with someone, especially somebody in church, it's good for you to get it fixed. A lot of people live with these ruptured relationships, whether it's an immediate family that's the family that can't get along, that just yells and fights, and, or they yell and fight silently, so they just kind of go to their separate corners in the home and never talk, and they just share a house together, not a life together. That's no way to live. Jesus offers a life that is, is a restoration of the relationship problems. We go back to the Garden of Eden And that first sin ruptured the relationship between man and God. It also ruptured the relationship between man and wife. And we've been repeating that ever since. So if you're here today and you have a ruptured relationship in your family, fix it. Well, you don't understand, preacher. If you just knew what so-and-so did to me, you know what? Jesus doesn't go into all of that. He says, here's the standard. Fix it it's good for you to fix it. But not only is it good for you, it's good for them. It's good for the other person too, because nobody likes to live through life with this mental battle going on where we kill each other from a distance in our heads, and it's only in our heads, but it still becomes that mind candy that we just suck on all day long, and it eats us up. And every time we think about that person… It gets to us, but they're doing the same thing. And so to step into that and repair that ruptured relationship allows us to have a peace and a freedom that Jesus gives us. It's good for you. It's good for them. And where I'll finish today is it's good for the church that we fix this. Not only that we fix these relationships, but we take whatever drastic action we need to to make it happen. You know, one of the things that I've seen through the years is that when people inside the church start feuding with one another and there's no move to fix it, it begins to create an atmosphere of distrust. Even my dog is smart enough to know that if I were to keep kicking her every time I saw her, she would step out of my way. And if she heard me coming, she would go hide somewhere. Dogs are smart enough to do that. You know people are smart enough to do that. And so what can happen in churches is people get at odds with one another, and one brother's fighting against another brother in the church, and nothing gets done to fix that. And so sooner or later, it becomes this atmosphere of distrust that ultimately becomes conflict that ultimately diverts the energy of the entire church away from accomplishing its mission to just maintaining order. I served a church one time that didn't trust each other. People didn't trust the deacons. De- deacons didn't trust each other. People in the pew didn't trust one another. It's like walking into a war zone every time you went to church. You think God's going to put his new babies in Christ in a church like that? Jesus is telling us relationship stuff here. It's the life that he offers to us. It's the life that is beyond all other lives. But he's also saying to us, you can't just do what everybody else does. You got to get it right. And so he says to us, we need to get this right. And so we take whatever actions are necessary to fix the anger problem, even if it's not your fault, he says. That's the first example. And if it is your fault, you sure better fix it. That's the second example. And it all comes underneath this one that says, don't murder. Interesting how Jesus gets incredible relationship truth out of a simple commandment that none of us would violate. When worship and anger collide, which overpowers the other? When I was a young teenager, I went to a worship service where an older teenager sitting behind me decided that he didn't like at all what the preacher was talking about, and so he jumped up and started yelling at the preacher during the worship service. Now, as a young teenager, I thought that was awesome. And then I remembered that it was my dad who was behind the pulpit, and then I was afraid for the guy behind me who was yelling at my dad. He was angry, mad angry. Which overpowers the other? That teenage kid grabbed a hymn book and threw it from the back of the building to the front, trying to hit the preacher with it. When anger and worship collide, which one overpowers the other? I'll just tell you this I have no idea what my dad was preaching about that day, but I remember that incident like it was yesterday. That's how we are when we get offended we remember the offense much more than we do the worship that we're supposed to have. So Jesus says, you got to get it right. It's part of living a brilliant life. It's part of reflecting back into society the glory of Jesus Christ and the life-changing power that He brings to us. And so right there where you sit this morning, let me just invite you to wear this if necessary. Can you think of any relationships in your life that are sour today? any relationship in your life where somebody is at odds with you, Jesus says before you even try to worship, you ought to go fix that. And we've been through a worship service today. Whether you've worshiped or not, I can't really tell, but I will tell you this, that the opportunity to fix the relationship is still there. Not only is the opportunity still there, the responsibility is still there. We don't have to live as angry church members. I, I, I'm not suggesting that we are that, but I know that there are churches all across America today that are angry, angry churches, and they're paralyzed in their mission because all of their energy goes to fight. Under God, let's never be that church. Under God, let's never be that person. Under God, let's be brilliant for the cause of Jesus Christ as we reflect his glory into a world that is eaten up with hate, where a guy gets in a, 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 a hotel and shoots and murders people for who knows what reason. Let's not be that person. Let's pray. And if you're here today and you know that there are relationships in your life that are off, Maybe it's a relationship with God himself, and you might have wandered in here, and you're just not even sure why you came in, but you know that things are not right between you and God. Maybe you're just angry, and you have reasons in your past to be angry. Maybe you're here, and you know somebody else is angry with you, and you can't seem to get it right. God promises you to help you with the problems of your life, but you have to let him into your life for that to happen. Do you know Jesus today? Has that relationship been fixed? If you know that you're angry with somebody in this room today, why wouldn't you fix that instead of hanging on to stuff that's eating you up? Father, we ask you to take this time and be glorified in it. Change lives, heal hurt, and fix anger is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.